I, we, we have a limited amount of time today, and this will be the last time I'm with you guys, so let's just see what happens. Um, there's a possibility that if we want to, uh, maybe going forward, I'll, I'll be in the same time zone as you guys, and we're not going to have anywhere to worship. I think we have Wi-Fi in the apartment, so there may be an opportunity just to continue, at least get to the end of chapter 14, maybe once or twice while I'm gone, continue this study via Skype. So let's just put that in our back pocket if you guys want to, or we can just take a break. I hate to end right at the end of a chapter and not finish, but that may be what happens today. So um, let's look at Revelation 14. Um, we're going to look at verse 13. Uh, here in this chapter, we have four snapshots in this victory campaign, the age-old war between the dragon and the woman and Messiah, Israel, the Messiah, and Satan, and this began with a heavenly campaign of this war, then an earthly campaign. Now we're in the victory campaign. And it's a series of snapshots. And I've drawn analogies to World War II. We talked about the snapshot of assembly, the snapshot of judgment. And there at the end of last week, we got into the third snapshot, verse 13, which is a snapshot of rest. This victory declaration. Go ahead and rest. Those that are alive and remain in the Lord at this time, go ahead and die and find rest from your labors. It's kind of like the comparison I drew was to the New York Times headlines involving the end of World War II, how victory was announced and the, the American people were told to celebrate technically before the war was over, um, both in the European and the Pacific campaigns. And so it's quite normal for rest to be announced before a conflict is over. I mean, there, there comes a point where a conflict is a foregone conclusion, uh, the, re the resolution of it, and it takes time to clean it up. So we still have the vile judgments to come. We still have Armageddon, but we're at a point in the tribulation when the tribulation saints can actually invite death in the Lord. It says in verse 13, Y hoy una voz del cielo que me decía... Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm, sorry, I'm using my new bilingual Spanish-English Bible. I'm excited about this because I like to have the King James translation beside a reliable Spanish version of the Bible. And the modern... The Spanish tradition is the Reina Valera, which goes back to the Reformation days. Two individuals, Reina and Valera, did the work on the translation from the received text, the same text tradition as the King James. That Bible has been around for a long time. In the middle 1900s, I think it was 1960 or 69, it was revised and brought in line with the modern text tradition. And so there's verses missing and elements of modern English Bibles based on a different text tradition that, in my opinion, compromise it. And so I've always trusted the 1909 version of the Reina Valera, but it's hard to find. It's hard to find in print. It's hard to find in li online. It's even hard to get as an app on the phone. There is one, but it's hopelessly outdated, and it doesn't work very well with the latest iOS. And so in 2010, a Dr. Gomez actually took the 1909 Reina Valera and revised it. It's called the Reina Valera Gomez, and uh, it was done to uh, bring it in line with the received text tradition. 
and the, the, uh, what that underlines the King James Bible. So it's a good solid uh, translation into the Spanish that we can trust. And I'm excited to finally get a copy of the Reina Valera Gomez with the King James Bible. I found this online and uh, I'm hoping that uh, if my Spanish goes south when I try to preach or share the gospel in a public setting in South America this summer, I know I can at least stand in the plaza and read the Word of God in Spanish and know that it's trustworthy. And so I can read Spanish and that will be my default. If we want to declare the Word of God, I'll just start reading. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to uh, have a good solid translation and it's real nice. So I've got to remember to stay on the English side of the column here this morning. Verse 13 of Revelation 14. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. To die in the Lord may be a sorrowful thing for those left behind, but it's not a worldly sorrow. We don't have to sorrow as those that have no hope. And to die in the Lord is to find rest. It is enter into rest. And our works do follow us. And God remembers the works that were done with improper motives, the works that were not sourced in the things of God. And He does remember the things we did do with a pure motive, regardless of the results. If we labored to minister to somebody in the body of Christ and we did it with a pure motive, and then that person went and betrayed us and spoke all kinds of lies about us, God knows. And those works do follow. And so this is talking here about the tribulation saints who are persecuted and martyred. But the application is to us as well. To die in the Lord is not something to fear. Rest is possible long before there is official victory. We're not at the end of the tribulation. We've still got the vile judgments. We've got, God's going to gather the nations to the place uh, 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 called Armageddon in the Hebrew tongue or Harmageddon. Uh, which is on the sign when you go there today in Israel at the Tell of Megiddo, uh, the place of Megiddo. And so there's still things to be done, but we're at a point where there's no reason to fight, no reason to flee. Just you're blessed if you're counted worthy to die in the Lord. And um, this is not unusual in this invitation prior to the vile judgments. We talked about World War II, but we see an interesting thing with the American Civil War. I'm kind of a Civil War buff. A Civil War is a war linguistically. Uh, the, word, the, 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 the terminology refers to two competing factions that are fighting for control over a single government. Technically, to refer to the war between the states as a Civil War is incorrect. The southern governments were not fighting to control the Union. They weren't fighting for, to control Washington, D.C. They wanted to leave the Union. They wanted to have their own independence uh, because of the cultural similarities, the economic similarities, and just a different culture, different values. We see that today when we look at political maps and, and, elect, and, and, and the electorate. But uh, it was a war for independence that sadly failed Prior to the American Civil War, the United States were always referred to in the plural. The United States are fill in the blank. But ever since the Civil War, that's changed. It's no longer thought of as a unity of states. 
Uh, it's as a church would be, a body of believers. Uh, it's the United States is. And as a result, our central government has grown more and more and more in power to the mess we have today. So God is sovereign. It's a sad thing. Um, but uh, my ancestors fought for the South. They didn't own slaves. They had a different set of values. They tried to protect their farms and their lands from an invading army. But on April 9, 1865, General Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse to General Grant and his Union Army that had surrounded them at Petersburg and the siege had become so overbearing that Lee's troops attempted to flee and get down into North Carolina and, and unite or hook up with General Johnston and his huge army from the south. But they were surrounded and to uh, relinquish further effusion of blood, Lee decided to surrender. We often think of April 9, 1865 as the end of the Civil War. It wasn't the end of the Civil War. Appomattox, Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia. General Lee was not the Confederacy. It's often been said that Robert E. Lee surrendered the Confederacy. His wife, who was related to George Washington, said, last time I checked, my husband's not the Confederacy. He surrendered his army. But when Appomattox took place, it was a time where we, there was generally speaking, as far as the northern people were concerned, we can relax, this war is over. It was just a matter of time. But it wasn't quite over. April 26th, um, a little, almost three weeks later, it took three weeks for General Johnston's armies to surrender to Sherman at a little place called Bennett Place here in North Carolina. On the way to Raleigh, there's a little log house. I think it's Alamance County, I may be wrong, where General Johnston surrendered 100,000 men. There were still 100,000 men engaged in service three weeks after Appomattox. To General Sherman, it was the armies of the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida. What's interesting is that Sherman and Johnston were mortal enemies on the battlefield, but they had great respect for one another. Um, in fact, when I believe this is correct, when General Sherman died some years later, Johnston went to his funeral, and it was a cold, very cold, rainy, gloomy day, and out of respect, he removed his hat for the entire service to show his respect for General Sherman, and as a result, he caught pneumonia and ended up dying, but had no regrets. So there was a different set of a level of honor in that day and time that there is completely absent from our government today. May 4th, 1865, the Confederate armies in Alabama, Mississippi, and East Louisiana uh, under, a, under a son of a former U.S. president surrendered, 10,000 men. Richard Taylor was the son of the president, Zachary Taylor. He was a Confederate general. But it wasn't until May 4th that 10,000 additional men surrendered. May 5th, another 4,000 surrendered at Citronelle, Alabama. May 9th, it wasn't until May 9th, a month later, that President Johnson um, declared that the armed resistance was ended. So, I mean, there was another month that went by. May 10th, the next day, the president of the Confederate States, Jefferson Davis, was captured uh, um, in, in southern Georgia, and as a result, 8,000 men had to surrender. He was captured and imprisoned for a couple of years, and then he was granted amnesty and released. You know, there's places around America today where liberals and, 
and, and millennials or, or, and racist people are, claim, are clamoring to have statues that honor honorable men taken down. Jefferson Davis is one of those men. He was a true American hero. And his uh, service to the country far predated the Civil War. And it's just a shame at the ignorance of people today that can't appreciate heroism, that can't appreciate difficult decisions that people have to make. There are times when we have two ways we can go. And it's very difficult to know what is right and what is wrong. And ultimately, we have to choose what is best based upon the knowledge that we have. And a man of honor makes that decision. He doesn't waffle. And when it doesn't go the way he thinks it should go, he stands by it and there's no regrets. There are people that do that. And you know, a couple, 18 months ago, I was faced with a very difficult decision where Esther was concerned. I was being told things that were happening in Minnesota. I didn't know what the truth was. I tried to talk to these people. I tried to find out what was going on while I've got in one ear her own father telling me, please don't let her go back up there. Esther saying, please don't send me back up there. I frankly didn't know exactly what the truth was. But I was in a position I had to make a very difficult decision based upon the knowledge I had. And in doing that, it cost our ministry financially and it cost us relationships. So if our motivation were, was financial or if our motivation was to please supporters, we wouldn't have made that decision. But we sacrificed and God knows what our motives are. And despite what's happened, I don't have any regrets. I stand by the decision we made 18 months ago, and I believe the church can do that as well. And honor is when you make difficult decisions with a pure motive, and when it doesn't go your way, you remain honorable. And we can learn that from people like Mr. Davis and others that are being maligned today by people who don't even know history. Um, Davis had six or seven children. Most of them, except maybe one or two, survived him. Very difficult life. He had medical problems. He had a nervous decision, a nerve problem in his face that caused great, great pain. He didn't ask to be made the president of the Confederate States. When the Union dissolved, he left Washington and went home to his plantation in Mississippi. Prior to the Civil War, Davis was a Mexican War hero. Uh, he married the daughter of General Zachary Taylor, who would later become a U.S. president. Um, his father-in-law did not like him. His father-in-law was against that marriage. Uh, when everybody else approved, they got married anyway, and his wife died of malaria not long thereafter. And it was kind of interesting that when the Mexican War came along, Davis had to serve under General Taylor in the army, and Davis was a hero at the battles of Buena Vista and Monterey. He literally held back single-handedly an entire regiment of Mexican troops, and it forced the general to say, you know what, my daughter was a better judge of a man than I was. And uh, so he was a close, you know, he, he was a relative of a former U.S. president under Franklin Pierce. He was a secretary of war. Anybody ever been out to southern Arizona or southern New Mexico? You know, at a map, you've got a little block down here on the map of New Mexico. And it's kind of like, what, what's that? Why is there a block there? And then Arizona's got a bottom part. Instead of being a square like some of the other states out there, there's a bottom part that follows a river. That land was acquired in something called the Gadsden Purchase, which was the, I think the 1830s, where the 
the U.S. wanted to secure a route where they could build a railroad from California to the east. And because of the terrain, uh, it needed to go south of the Gila River to the Rio Grande. And so it was Jefferson Davis who was the Secretary of War who negotiated the purchase of that land from Mexico uh, for the United States. And so it was the last official purchase uh, not, I'm not going to get that correct because Alaska was purchased later, but on the U.S. mainland, it was the last official acquisition of territory. And so all the people living in southern Arizona, south of the Gila River, and in that little block of New Mexico ought to be thankful for this man that they want to tear down from the town squares. So, you know, we're talking about a genuine American hero who had to make difficult decisions. He was captured, but he was eventually vindicated. And he was uh, freed, no charges. Uh, he dressed up like a woman to, to flee because, uh, and he got a little ways down the road, but they caught him. I guess I'd do what I had to do to try to get out of Dodge as well, but he wasn't captured until May 10th. Jefferson is a hero, God-fearing man, more honor in that man's little finger, in my opinion, than in the, any senator or congressman that sits in Washington, D.C. today, any one of them. And... Um, it's sad that we don't have heroes and men of honor and consistency like that today. Notwithstanding, God knows, the motto of the Confederate States of America was a Latin phrase, Deo Vindici, which means God is our defender. And I think that ought to be our motto when we make difficult decisions based on the Word of God. God's our defender. May 11th, 7,500 Confederate troops have to surrender in Jacksonport, Arkansas. May 12th, another 3,400 men in Kingston, Georgia. And the last battle of the Civil War wasn't until May 13th, more than a month after Appomattox Courthouse. And guess what? It was a Confederate victory. It was a Confederate romp. The first battle of the Civil War at Fort Sumter was a Confederate victory. The last battle of the Civil War, May 13th, at Palmito Ranch near Brownsville, Texas, was a Confederate victory. Uh, they won the battle, uh, but then they figured, well, I guess we'll just disband and go home because it doesn't matter. There's nobody left. So it's just strange how history plays out. But May 13th, more than a month later, they were still fighting. It was a Confederate victory. June 2nd, the former formal surrender of the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, 43,000 men. 43,000 men didn't surrender till June 2nd. And then there was, it wasn't until June 23rd that there was the last surrender of a significant-sized Confederate force. It was under a general by the name of Stand Waity who, who uh, commanded the Cherokee Mounted Rifles. These were Native Americans that fought for the South. Uh, this happened at Fort Towson. They just gave themselves up. This man, Waity, had been hunted for a long time. He was known even by his enemies as a very bold and brave fighting man. And he was never captured. He gave himself up. So that kind of throws a kink into revisionist history that Native Americans were fighting for the South and saw value in what the South desired. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit the narrative when you discover that in Lincoln County, North Carolina, the largest single regiment of black freemen was raised to fight for the Confederate Army. These were free blacks. They were not slaves that volunteered to serve and fight for the South. Those things don't fit the narrative. 
that revisionist history wants to shove down our throats and so they're conveniently forgotten about. But the point is, I'm not here to talk about the Civil War. The point is that long after Appomattox, things drug on. But at Appomattox, it was known, relax, the war's over. That's what we have going on here. That's why there comes a point where even today, these things are years away, at least seven years away, Christ returns with His kingdom. The rapture could be at any time. But even today, we can relax because we know the end of the matter. We can rest before it officially transpires because when God says something, it's as good as done, whether its fulfillment is a thousand years from now because God never changes. So I just think it's interesting how we have parallels with World War II and the Civil War. And I have a, a portrait of Robert E. Lee hanging in my office. Uh, it'll, be, it'll come down if it's taken out of my cold, dead fingers. Just like my Confederate flags that my ancestors carried, uh, they'll come down if they're pried from my cold, dead fingers. That's just the way it is, period. I'm not ashamed of my heritage. Um, I don't come from racists. The people that decry racism in this country today are the biggest racists on the face of the planet and the biggest hypocrites. And if you think the clear dividing line is Republican and Democrat, you're sadly deceived. This fool who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, I'm sad to say I voted for him on November the 8th. Richard Burr is a disgrace. And I am sad that I voted for that man. He's the problem. People like that are why folks in this country are sick of politicians. But what can we do? There's a payday someday and we can rest in that. At this point in the tribulation, it is so bad and the end is so near that the saints, the tribulation saints, don't have to hold on any longer. Death in the Lord is welcome rest. I think there are some passages that highlight this and are consistent in Scripture that we tend to forget when it comes to the death of a loved one who dies in the Lord. There's nothing wrong with tears and sorrow, but we have to understand that the sorrow is not like those that have no hope. And at some point, we have to move on and strengthen the things that remain and rest in the promises of God. Let's just look at a couple passages of Scripture. Bob, if you'd read Isaiah 57.1, Daniel, 2 Corinthians 5.8, and um, Gene, I'll have you read Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. Just go ahead whenever you're ready. The righteous uh, perishes, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away. None consider that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. The righteous perish... And everybody thinks, what a terrible thing. But God says, you don't even take time to consider that when some, sometimes when the righteous die or perish, I'm delivering them from evil days to come. King Josiah was one of the most righteous kings in all of Israel's history. He loved the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was younger than me when he died. He was in his 30s. Oh, how terrible. And the people mourned. And I believe what Isaiah has written here is in that context. 
that historical event. Man, sometimes God is merciful and delivers us from evil days to come. There's a lot that's transpired in this country since my grandfather died. Praise God he hadn't had to sit around and be kept out of the presence of the Lord to see this mess. 2 Corinthians 5.8 We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's Paul's confidence. There is no soul sleep as some false teachers teach. The body sleeps. When the, when, the, when the Scriptures in the New Testament refer to those that have fallen asleep, it's talking about the body. The body's one day resurrected and made into a new body, but the soul doesn't sleep. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. It's possible for the soul to be absent from the body. Witchcraft is involved and the New Age is involved in that stuff all the time. But to be absent from the body in the Lord is to be present with the Lord. And that's, a, that's rest. We don't have to worry what happens in the next election if the Lord takes us home. We don't have to worry about it. And in a sense, maybe we, can, maybe we should model that in our church with the difficult decisions we have to make, where we have to withdraw ourselves, where we have to uh, turn another matter over the Lord. Maybe we need to think like those who are with the Lord now and don't have to concern themselves. Maybe we can practice that now by not concerning ourselves with it. You know, somebody asks a question, well, why didn't you send this back? Or why didn't I get this? Don't respond. Just ignore it. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Praise God we don't have to worry about Esther Roy anymore. There's relief in that. There's plenty of people out here Jim, serving the Lord that we can focus on now. I praise God that I don't have to worry about Ricky Springer anymore. Seriously. I'm tired of it. It comes a point where it's hard to keep lifting people up. I don't need that. Let's move forward. I pray God these people get right, but it's not my problem anymore. When we leave this earth, these things aren't our problem anymore. I don't care if Hillary Clinton were to get elected in some election in the future. I mean, I guess she thinks she's going to try to run again. The lady just needs to go away. But... Uh, She's not, but if the Lord takes me home, I don't care anymore. Let's think about these things even now. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims of the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly if they had, had been mindful of the country from whenceforth they came out, they might have opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Do you think anybody that's seen the other country wants to come back? No. These men of faith and women of faith died in faith. And when they died, they looked for a better country, even beyond what was promised here on this earth. And the Bible says that they considered themselves strangers and pilgrims. 
As believers, we are strangers and pilgrims. If people claim to be a church and they're so tied to this life and it's all about building a, a, an earthly kingdom, then they're not a stranger or pilgrim and their sights are not on that heavenly country. And I believe they've betrayed themselves. Or in that good old English word, berayed. To, to betray is to reveal by telling. To beray is to reveal by showing. They beray themselves uh, to what they really are. I was reading this morning where some... Once again, it's the United Methodist Church. I mean, surprise, surprise. Um, they have ordained a deacon somewhere that's not a man or a woman... Their first non-binary, or binary, I don't know what they call themselves. This Cretan claims that she's both a man and a woman, and she likes to be called M, and referred to with the pronoun they. And this um, just progressive, tolerant Methodist church has ordained her as a deacon, or it, or whatever it is, deigned they as a deacon, and have sent they, them out to preach the gospel and to build up the church. And the whole thing was just man-centered, earth-centered. These people don't have a clue about what it is to be a stranger or a pilgrim in the earth. These people deserve each other. These people don't know Jesus Christ. These people will suffer the wrath of God in eternal hell, fire, and brimstone, and damnation forever, lest they repent. There are no binaries or non-binaries or whatever the heck these people call themselves in heaven. There's not. There's no homosexuals in the kingdom of God. There's no adulterers, whoremongers, liars, unrighteous. These things aren't in the kingdom of God. These things are reaped and the blood flows into the horse's bridle, as we'll see. But I, I, I just don't know what else to do when I see stuff like that but laugh anymore. These people deserve each other. And the United Methodist Church ceased being a church decades ago. The funniest thing about the whole article I read was that it was called a church. That's the funniest thing there is. Are you kidding me? What a joke. And there's a plenty of Baptist churches that are like that as well. I'm not picking on Methodists. I'm sure there's a remnant. In Thyatira, we read about Long ago in this series, the, the, the unrepentant church, one of the most wicked of all, there was still a remnant in there. And so this wickedness in these echelons of denominational government still can't stamp out the remnant. We pray that the remnant comes out. When a remnant won't come out of something so defiled as that, then the Lord really can't use them. At Thyatira, the remnant was told, I'm not going to give you anything else because you can't handle it. Just hold on to what you got. But what a joke. What a place we're in today. But in the Lord, we can have rest. Because all will be made right. Here we're told, the tribulation saints are told to welcome death in the Lord. And they're told to come rest from their labors. Rest from their labors. In the book of Hebrews, we see this reiterated in Hebrews chapter 4. I'm trying to uh, 
I see the Spanish name of the book here, so it's taken me a couple of seconds longer than normal. Hebrews 4.9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. I said, there remaineth therefore a rest unto the people of God. There is a rest to the people of God. And my friends, it's not in this life. But it's there. The tribulation saints are called, come rest from your labors. And their works do follow them. It says there in Revelation 13. What does it say? Likewise in Hebrews, Hebrews 6 verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Just like be sure your sins will find you out, the opposite is true as well. God doesn't forget your labors, your works of love. He doesn't forget. God is not unrighteous. If God were to forget these things, He'd be unrighteous, but He doesn't. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward His name in that you ministered to the saints. God doesn't forget when you minister to the saints or even those that claim to be saints. He doesn't forget. Despite what's said about you, despite what lies are told, despite how you've been betrayed, God does not forget. That ought to motivate us. Now, a lot of things I've done over the years that people claim to be so bold and they claim I'm this great soldier for Christ, I know better. I know plenty of things that weren't done with the proper motive. I don't even remember sometimes whether something even meant anything in the kingdom of God. I don't know whether the six or seven, seven years we bent over backwards to disciple and to provide for and to encourage and to send out Ricky Springer. I don't know if that means anything. But I do know that God knows. And I'm content to rest in that. God knows what I did with a wrong motive. It'll burn up at the judgment seat of Christ. But God also knows what was a work and a labor of love. And I'll just trust that. And I'll move forward. And I'll continue to serve the Lord with the, with the knowledge I've been given to the best of my ability and I'm going to fail many times. But praise God, there's a God that knows and remembers and He does not forget. In Christ, He cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, but He doesn't forget our works and labor of love. And I trust, I hope that my, some works will withstand the fires at the judgment seat of Christ and that I'll have some crown I can cast at the Savior's feet. That's my desire. It's my motivation. But God knoweth. Sometimes when you're in conflict with other believers and people just don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, sometimes the best response is a very simple <coughs> statement from the Scriptures. The Lord judge between me and thee. When that statement is made, it doesn't need to be followed up. You don't have to defend yourself. The Lord judged between me and thee. Period. Maybe we ought to make more use of that phrase, but God is not unrighteous to forget. The works follow the tribulation saints. They follow the church as well. And there's comfort in that. God will not forget. Turn to Matthew 19. I mean, I could have got, I, I could get into reaping and sowing today and what's, what's there at the end of 14 and 
kind of a, som- a sobering thing, negative. Maybe we need more positive encouragement this morning, so I'm harping a little bit more on verse 13. just want to encourage you. Matthew 19, 29. Oh, let me see here. Matthew 19, 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God may have called you to forsake many things in this life. Some people lose their families because of their faith in Christ. Some people lose houses or lands. There are believers out there that have lost far more than we can comprehend. And God knows that. And there's a reward to the righteous. Praise God for that. And be content to be a nobody. Because the last will be first. And the first will be last in God's kingdom. And that's the only kingdom that matters. I read this and say, you know what? I can be quite content to be a nobody. When I look at all these people that start out in service to the Lord and they become very famous, lots of book deals and people know their names, more often than not, in fact, almost always there's compromise. And I'd rather be a nobody and be consistent in my walk with the Lord than to compromise. Mark 10. Jesus restates this a little bit and it emphasizes just a little bit different point that we can remember as well. Mark 10, 29 and 30. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. But many there that are first shall be last and the last first. So not only do we receive a hundredfold in the world to come, but there's a sense in with persecutions, we receive a hundredfold even in this life. Because when you lose family and houses and lands for Christ and the Gospel, and you come into the church, you gain a family. You gain the homes and the lands of your family in Christ. You know, people lose family members and they struggle with that and they forget that the family God has given them in their local church body is a family hundredfold. And what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. That ought to be our attitude in the church. And in that sense, these things are true even in this life, albeit with persecutions. But man, we can, we can praise God for the families and the houses and the lands we in a sense gain even in this life, by coming into the church and being part of the family of God. That's why it's so important for your church family to be close-knit, to be willing to help one another, to share with one another, to not look to giving the wicked the benefit of the doubt over your brethren in Christ. We are to love each other. And our love for one another, our bearing one another's burdens, those things are the testimony of the, to the world, not toleration of evil and wickedness like the backward church says today. <coughs> God does not forget, and there is a rest that remaineth to the people of God. 
Here toward the end of the tribulation, the saints are told, the tribulation saints are said, rest. Don't even hold on any longer. There's no reason to. Come and rest. And then after that, some terrible things happen on the earth and it all comes to a conclusion. The rest here is like the, that headline in the New York Times when the Nazis surrendered the American forces and then lots of other stuff had to happen. It wasn't until 1951 that Truman officially declared the World War II over as far as Germany was concerned, but that people could relax long before that. We can relax even today despite what is to come. And there is grace in that. Um, as we go forward, we have the last um, snapshot of victory. It's the last one. It's verses 14 through 20. This was what I would call a snapshot of reaping. We've had a snapshot of assembly that I drew an analogy with the assembly of U.S. troops atop the mountain, Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima. Famous snapshot worth a thousand words. We have a snapshot of uh, judgment. We saw that with the three angelic messengers announcing the, the uh, everlasting gospel. Judgment is coming. Announcing the fall of the world system and the announcement of the fall of those who worship the Antichrist, those that make up the world system in its final form. A snapshot of judgment, just like that famous photo of troops uh, landing on Normandy Beach. It's worth a thousand words. You don't look at that picture without thinking judgment upon Nazi Germany. Then we've got a snapshot of rest, like those New York Times headlines ending World War II before the war was officially over. And now we have a snapshot uh, of reaping. The fourth and final snapshot in this victory campaign. This victory campaign is chapter 14. Chapter 14 is a, is a part of the larger parenthesis that begin with chapter 12 verse 1 and goes here to the end. Um, after 14 verse 20, the chronological narrative picks up again. And we're here at the, toward, basically at the end of the tribulation. Those vile judgments happen very quick. And the narrative... The very first seal judgment is the rise of Antichrist. Going forth to conquer and to conquer with a bow but no arrow. Not the crown of authority, but the crown of a victor. And those seven seal judgments, we get to the seventh seal judgment. That is the seven trumpets. And then we get down to the seventh trumpet. And that's what is the seven vials of God's wrath. And so we pick that up starting with verse 15. So technically, when the narrative picks back up, it's the final part of the seventh seal judgment. Everything is going as planned. Occasionally, there's a backing up and looking at the greater picture in the book of Revelation. Reaping. Let's just read these verses. I probably won't get to comment on them very much. And I looked, and I behold, and be, I... I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one like unto the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Is there any doubt who this is? And another angel came out of the temple. Remember, right before the parenthesis started in chapter 12 with the great war in heaven, the temple in heaven was suddenly flung open. So the temple doors are open. And now it says, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him 
that sat on, on the cloud, the Son of Man, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So here we have a harvest, a reaping, like wheat. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. So you have the Son of Man with a sharp sickle on a cloud. You have an angel that comes out of the temple and tells him to reap the earth. Now you have another angel with a sharp sickle. He came out of the temple. One comes out of the temple, tells the Son of Man to reap. A second one comes out of the temple with a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So we have the Son of Man, and we have three angels. One angel comes out of the temple and tells the Son of Man to reap the earth. A second angel comes out of the temple with a sharp sickle. And then a third angel, it says the one at the altar that had power over fire told this angel with the sharp sickle to reap the clusters of the vine of the earth. If you go back to chapter 8 in Revelation, there's an angel before the sounding of the seven trumpets. There's an angel that it's at the altar of incense that ministers in terms of the prayers of the saints. Remember the saints, the tribulation saints, the martyred saints are before that altar saying, Lord, how long until you serve justice upon those that have killed us and they're told to rest a little while this is the fifth seal judgment until your fellow servants are likewise killed then the justice will come then in chapter 8 that angel at the altar of incense which is the prayers of the saints lifting up scoops up fire from that altar and cast it to the earth this is that angel that has power over fire that comes and says thrust in and reap the vine of the earth so there's a connection here to the martyred saints there's a connection here to what the saints desired in the fifth seal judgment and its actual fulfillment. It goes on to say, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city. This is a reference to Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So the blood that's going to be shed is like the red liquid that splattered everybody where when the grapes are trodden in the winepress to make the juice. So here we have a harvest with the Son of Man harvest the earth like a wheat harvest, and then we have a vintage or a vintage harvest where the grapes are harvested. This is a snapshot of reaping. When I think of the World War II analogy, I forgot to bring it this morning, but I had a famous picture that was taken from the skies when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and you see the great mushroom cloud. It's a famous picture. When you look of it, all I can think of is reaping. Japan reaped what it sowed when it marched across Asia, when it attacked Pearl Harbor. This was a reaping. And that's what we have here. There's two phases or parts of this reaping. One is a harvest of the earth, as I said. 
the Son of Man with a golden crown, sharp sickle. The second is the vintage harvest of the vine of the earth. And this involves an angel with a sharp sickle. I guess my question would be, and I'm going to confess that I'm not 100% sure, <coughs> are these two reapings one and the same? The judgment of the wicked? Or what do we have here? A contrast. A contrast. One reaping is unto salvation. The other is unto damnation. And these are being contrasted. Is this two reapings? One unto salvation, the harvest, and one, the vintage, unto wrath and destruction? Or is it just a restatement? The destruction that is reaped here is pictured as a wheat harvest and as a vintage harvest. I guess there's several possibilities here. What we could have here, we're in a parenthesis that backs off and gives the bigger picture. So what we could have here is the rapture of the church, the gathering of the church that's prefigured in chapter 4 verse 1 when John is called up to heaven, contrasted with a second gathering. And that gathering is the vintage. Gathering and the harvest of the grapes together, sent it into a wine press. When we continue to read in Revelation, we'll see that the vile judgments are designed to gather the nations into one place. That the evil spirits that go out of the mouth of the beast and out of the false prophet are designed to gather the nations together. One of the vile judgments dries up the river Euphrates, a great barrier between the east and the west, so that the kings of the east can come. So we know God's final judgment, His winepress of wrath, is the gathering of the nations together at a place called Armageddon. And that's where the blood will flow. So what we could have here is a contrast. One gathering, a harvest, which we see in the rapture prior to the onset of the tribulation. And secondly, a <coughs> rapture or a gathering. Just as God gathers for salvation, He gathers for judgment. Armageddon. It's possible that this could be a contrast and the harvest is not the church. The harvest is the tribulation saints. And therefore, it's connected with what's just been said. When the Son of Man reaps the harvest, He takes all the tribulation saints home. Not through rapture, but through death and martyrdom. And they're raptured. And therefore, this reaping is connected with verse 13. The saints are dying the Lord, and then the Son of Man takes that scythe and reaps, and they die in the Lord. And they're taken out of the way so that the judgment can fall. That's possible. This would connect it with Revelation 6 when the fifth seal judgment, the martyrs are saying, How long, O Lord? And they're told to wait a little while until their fellow servants should also meet the same end. If the tribulation saints are the harvest, then the vintage would be the heathen nations. I'm not going to do it today, but it's very interesting. There's a passage in Joel chapter 3 and Isaiah 63 that sheds light on this in this imagery. So if there's a contrast here, we have a gathering unto salvation or rest versus a gathering unto judgment. It could be the church, an event that's previously happened, contrasted with Armageddon, or it could be what happens here with the death of the tribulation saints and Christ's rapture of them, connecting it with the previous verse 
versus the heathen gathered for judgment at Armageddon. Or we could have a situation here where the reaping is one and the same. The Gentile nations are the harvest of the earth. We see imagery like that talked about in Joel 3. The vintage wouldn't be the Gentile nations. The vintage would be Israel. Not the remnant, but the two-thirds in the land that Zechariah says will perish. Perhaps the harvest of the earth with the Son of Man is the Gentile nations and the vintage is Israel. There's evidence for that. In fact, God calls Israel in Isaiah 5 His vineyard and talks about tearing it down because they didn't bring forth grapes. They brought forth wild grapes. Or, perhaps, when we think about Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, when He talks about a harvest, perhaps the harvest of the Son of Man here, the wheat harvest is the harvest of the tares. That, mean, that would stand in contrast to the 144,000 we see in chapter 14, verse 1. They're with the Lord. The rest, the tares, the Jewish tares are harvested. They're reaped. And then that would mean that the vintage would be the Antichrist and his army. So these are possibilities in terms of interpretation. I do have an opinion on the matter based upon my studies of the Scriptures. But I'm not going to be dogmatic here because there's an element of uncertainty in terms of what exactly is being referred to here. We know that Armageddon is being referred to, but what, why the Son of Man and one harvest and then an angel with another harvest? It's possible that there really is an element of truth in all these possibilities. The Word of God's like that. Sometimes we want to talk either or when the truth of God's Word is both and, and there is no contradiction. That's what I laugh when I hear these people just arguing incessantly over and over and over, hours and hours and hours, about God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. As if you can't have one without the other. And God forbid, if you don't consider yourself a Calvinist, then I can't have any fellowship with you. I just laugh at that. Because when I look at the Scriptures, it's very clear to me we're not talking either or. We're talking both and. You see, God has this perspective that He reveals to us through the Scriptures that we can't possibly have. But it's revealed to us for our comfort. Man has a perspective, a limited perspective, that God cannot be forced to look through. So, when we try to make one or the other happen, we fall into a trap. And we get caught up in what Paul called vain and profane babblings where there is no profit. I believe here, regardless of the way you see this, these possibilities are all confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. Maybe that's the deep wellspring of God's Word and all of it's true. But regardless... And we'll get into the text next time. I don't want to get into the text. But regardless, when we read these verses here, the snapshot of reaping, regardless of the specific details, whether this is the rapture of the church being contrasted with Armageddon, or the death of the tribulation saints being a harvest versus the harvest of the wicked, whether it's Israel and the Gentiles, 
there's one overriding, loud, eternal truth that's consummated here in this snapshot. It's what I call divine karma. We use the word karma like, oh, you're going to, you do something, it's going to come back on you. You reap what you sow. I'm not talking about worldly karma here. Karma is actually a word that comes from Hindu and Buddhist philosophy. There's an element of truth in it. But in Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, karma is the result of blind chance. We don't believe in blind chance. There's karma, but my friends understand that karma is not by chance. It's by divine decree. So there's a difference between divine karma and worldly karma. Just like there's a difference between genuine sorrow and worldly sorrow. Tears don't make you right. Some people can cry a river of tears. And it's no different than Esau. He wasn't sad about losing a blessing or the birthright and what those things actually meant in terms of God's covenant. He was upset that his brother got the best of him. He got caught. Worldly sorrow. Sometimes the tears that roll down the cheeks of the prettiest of faces are just facades that hide a dark, wicked heart. A self-serving, manipulative, wicked heart that has no part in the things of which we speak. Sometimes. Don't believe a pretty face or a tear rolling down the cheek. Divine karma versus worldly karma. Divine karma is by divine decree. Worldly karma is by random chance and nothing happens by chance. What is the overriding truth being summed up here at the end of Revelation 14? Turn to Galatians 6. What is divine karma? It's defined very simply here. In light of the situation that was discussed earlier today, we can rest in this. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And I think the next verse goes with it. <coughs> and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Here, when the law of divine karma is promulgated to the reader of Scripture, we do have a contrast. There are two types of reaping and sowing. A definite contrast. There's a reaping unto corruption, and there's a reaping unto the things of the Spirit, life everlasting. So God is not mocked. He knows the truth. There is a reaping unto judgment, and there's a reaping unto life everlasting and reward. So there is a contrast here, regardless of exactly what's being compared or contrasted in the Revelation team. In light of what was talked about earlier today, yes, rest. Be sure sin will be found out. The lies will come out. But at the same time, 
We need to remember that when we sow, we don't sow because we want men to speak well of us. The Bible says, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. That's what they do with false prophets. Jesus said that in Luke 6. But we sow in the Spirit out of a desire to please God. And in light of this law of reaping and sowing, let us not be content just to say, well, you know what? God knows the truth and, and, and be sure your sin will find you out. There's also an element in which this ought to compel us not to get weary in well-doing when people betray us or people lie to us or things don't go the way we thought they should or there's not the results that we think we should have in ministry. Do not be weary in well-doing for eventually in due season... You'll reap. Remember, God's not unrighteous to forget your works and labor of love. Don't faint. So divine karma is what can compel us not to have to justify ourselves. And it also ought to compel us not to faint. But to continue to, be not, to not be in well-doing. This is the point of this reaping we see in Revelation 14. You're going to reap what you sow. That what you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. What you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap reward and everlasting life. Eliphaz the Temanite, one of Job's friends, Job's friends were off base in many ways, but they did speak truth as well. And in Job chapter 4, verse 8, one of his friends said, Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness will reap the same. Karma. Reaping. We see this in Revelation 13. I'm almost done. Revelation 13, 9 and 10. We've already been here. When we've been told about the beast, Antichrist, that comes up and, and <coughs> who he is in this parenthesis and the war he makes with the saints and his attempt to overcome them and the power he has over all kindreds, tongues, and nations... In this context, the writer says, if any man have an ear, let him hear. Anytime you see that in Scripture, you need to think in spiritual terms. Wake up, listen. Listen. Can you hear what's being said? He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. So in this very same context, we're already given the law of reaping and sowing. You lead into captivity, you'll be led into captivity. You kill with the sword, you'll be killed with the sword. This is the patience and faith of the saints. The world says there is no God. We claim we came from a beast and animals. God's going to give a beast to rule over us. We speak our own judgment. And sometimes we can just let people say things. Let people say the lies... Let them speak the things because God has a way of having people speak their own judgment against themselves. Remember the people of Israel complaining to Moses in the desert? You brought us out here to die in this desert. What did God say? To Don't let That's fine. They just spoke their own judgment. They're going to die in the desert. Exactly what they said was going to happen is going to happen to them. And so let people lie. Let them say these things because they're going to end up speaking their own judgment. And like the boy who cried wolf, there'll be no one there to help him. 
Sometimes we come to a point with people that we have to accept that we can't help them anymore. We can pray for them. We can ask God to bring them to repentance. We don't make problems for them. We don't try to make their lives difficult. We turn them over to the Lord. And we can't help them anymore. Only God can do that. And, um, but neither are we to be those that make problems. We, we've got to spend our time doing what's right by the gospel and moving forward. So we don't need to be making problems and getting distracted, but neither can we help anymore. Um, divine karma. There is a payday someday. This is the answer to the prayers and questions that the martyred saints under the altar of incense pray in Revelation 6. The fifth seal judgment. This is their answer. When, Lord, how long? And here at the end of chapter 14, this is God's answer. When we ask God a question, He's not obligated to answer it. But oftentimes when He answers it, if we'll wait patiently, He doesn't answer it with a period. He answers it with an exclamation mark. The end of Revelation 14, reaping is God's answer to the prayers of the saints, the martyred saints. Their martyrdom guaranteed this day would come. That's why it was considered a fifth seal judgment. And God answers it with an exclamation point. I just want to end with one last verse. Isaiah 64 verse 1. Here's what the writer, the prophet, asked the Lord. He says to the Lord, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. The prophet longed that God would just tear the heavens and come down and make His enemies know Him. That desire has been a desire of the saints going back to the beginning of time. It's we, it's we struggle with that today. And we can take that to the Lord. And we can ask Him how long. When, O oh Lord? But He's going to do it in His timing. And you can rest assured that just as Japan reaped the fruits of its destruction at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that was a very difficult decision that our president had to make at that time. There was, ish, there was questions on both sides. It could have gone either way, but he made a decision and he stood by it. I'd rather see that from politicians today than waffling back and forth. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And if, it's, if you're shown that it's wrong, don't do it. But if it's, if it's genuinely a legitimate righteous option, then do it and don't second guess it. You know, we need to try to be like that, but President Truman was like that as far as the bombs were concerned. Um, there was a reaping. We can rest assured that there's a day coming when the earth will be reaped, when the rind press will be trodden, and it'll be a bloody affair. In Isaiah, it talks about this incident where Messiah comes and fights and His garments are splattered with blood because it's so bloody. That's the God of the Bible. We may not want to hear it. The difference between our God and the God of Islam is God doesn't need us to go fight for Him and to shed blood and to reap consequences. He doesn't need us to do it. He does it Himself. And we're told to love our enemies. That vengeance is the Lord's. Diametrically opposed to the death cult that is Islam.
Not the same God. So we'll end there today. The next time, we'll just quickly go phrase by phrase in these verses. And then we can go into chapter 15. So, the lesson today is a snapshot of reaping. There's a payday someday. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Therefore, let us not faint. Let's don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season we too shall reap, if we faint not. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I thank You for teaching us this morning. I know it was a little abbreviated, but I think a lot was shared, and I think and hope and pray it was some words of encouragement. I pray, Lord, that You'd bless the meal we're about to eat, bless our time of fellowship. And Lord, when it comes to what's righteous and true, there comes a time where we need to rest in decisions that have been made. We need to move forward. We need to trust You. And we need to remember that ultimate justice, Lord, is the patience and faith of the saints. And it's just as sure as Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as your creation, as everything else revealed in your word. Lord, when we turn people over to you, I, I, I pray that we can trust you with that. And uh, that we continue to pray for those who are, have stepped out of your will, to love them and spirit, but not to get in the way of what you need to do. Um, and you are a gracious God that changes lives, and I praise you for that, Lord. You restore relationship. But it's better to let you do it than to try to do it on our own. And uh, again, thank you for your word, Lord. And uh, thank you that uh, we don't have to sorrow as the world with no hope and that we can live as strangers and pilgrims and look forward to the day we can be in your kingdom and all this stuff will be gone. Even conflicts in the body of Christ, Lord, that aren't going to get resolved in this life. Conflicts between genuine believers, one day they will be resolved in the kingdom of God. They will be. And if it takes till then, fine. But there won't be any disunity in the body of Christ, the bride of Christ in heaven. And I praise God for that. In Jesus' name, amen.